Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. According to Bob Woodward, Donald Trump knowingly misled the public about the coronavirus in February when it really mattered. How much blame does the president bear for the 200,000 and counting American lives lost to the virus? Then, opinion writer-at-large Charlie Warzel joins us for a debate about the conspiracy-turned-political movement, QAnon. What do QAnoners believe, and how seriously should we take them? Last week, Bob Woodward's new book, Rage, quoted President Trump describing COVID-19 as airborne and deadly stuff in early February, at a time when his public denial about the virus still had weeks to run. This revelation followed the previous week's fury over anonymous reports that Trump had sneered at the American war dead during a World War I commemoration. And there's good reason to think we'll have more of this as November nears, leaks and revelations about the president that seem to be saved up for the election homestretch. Michelle, we'll get to the election in a minute, but I want to start with a counterfactual debate. What do you think would have happened if Trump had said publicly about COVID what he was saying to Woodward in February? Well, I think you would have had much less of a Republican anti-masking movement. You would have had much less of this, you know, sense that sort of defying social distancing regulations is a mark not just of conservatism, but really a mark of fealty to the president. We had this really dark moment when Herman Cain, the former Republican presidential candidate, died of COVID shortly after appearing unmasked at a Trump rally. And then his Twitter account, which somebody continues to maintain posthumously, was still tweeting out about how the danger of COVID is overrated. And I don't think that you would have that sort of mentality, which is often taken as a sign of loyalty to the president and his movement. It just, it just wouldn't be. I think that if from the beginning, Trump had said this is extraordinarily dangerous and made masking part of his iconography, you would have conservatives adopt that. Trump followers have proven themselves pretty ideologically flexible in sort of jettisoning previously strongly held beliefs like Vladimir Putin is bad. The United States should not be part of an axis of murderous autocrats when they get a signal from the president. And, you know, I don't think there was a lot of ideological freight attached previously to pandemic preparedness and warding off disease. So I think the movement would have shifted pretty easily behind him. So just to step back and give listeners a little context, I, you know, wrote a either incredibly badly timed or incredibly well timed, (laughs) depending on your point of view, column just before the Woodward revelations came out where I argued that while Trump's response to the coronavirus has been sort of transparently catastrophic, flailing, you know, whatever whatever pejorative you want to use, it's not totally clear that that flailing is actually the big reason why the U.S. has 200,000 deaths. And 
lots of people didn't agree with that argument, to say the least. So I but I, I want to drill into what you just said, and then you can go back to telling me why why I'm being silly. But so when Trump has this interview with Woodward, right, it's early to mid-February. And at that point, the sort of official scientific view is skeptical of masking. You have sort of formal recommendations from public health authorities saying that people shouldn't wear masks, that masks aren't effective against the virus. Um, And it's not clear how much of that is based on science and how much of it was a kind of like political strategy to prevent people from stockpiling masks because we didn't have enough masks. But at the same time, you have sort of a run of public statements and commentary, including in our newspaper, arguing that people are being too fearful about the virus, that, you know, this is xenophobia and it's going to encourage hostility to Asian people and hostility to immigrants and so on, right? I don't think they were saying that people are being too fearful about the virus. They were saying that there was no reason to direct that fear towards Asian Americans or towards, you know, kind of American Chinatowns, right? That it was not more dangerous to go to Chinatown than it was to go to, at that point, any other, you know, kind of crowded place with a lot of restaurants. And I don't think we've seen any evidence that it was. I think you had some New York politicians and public leaders saying versions of that. But you also had people like the head of the WHO saying things like, xenophobia is right now more dangerous than the virus. Like that was sort of a rhetorical trope that was in the air. And I guess I believe two things about this Trump and Woodward stuff. First, Trump absolutely should have been saying that, saying what he said to Woodward in public. And, you know, had he said it in public and certainly not taken the like four weeks of wheel spinning denial that followed, that the U.S. would probably be in some kind of better shape. At the same time, I also think if Trump had like gone all in on masks, shut down, social distancing, At that moment in mid-February, it would have prompted at least a mild and hopefully temporary liberal backlash where it was seen as Trump grabbing power and hyping a threat to help his reelection and, you know, feed xenophobia. And to me, the, the biggest question for the first wave of the coronavirus was what would have helped New York shut down a week sooner than it did? Right. Because so many cases in the U.S. came in through New York. That became the epicenter of our first wave. And it's just not totally clear to me that Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo would have been encouraged to be more vigorous about shutting down the city if it was seen as a Trump policy. Do you think that's wrong? You know, that I I think that might be true, but I just don't think that you can reduce the American response to this calamity to those decisions. And it also seems strange to me to say, well, scientists got it wrong in February when the data and what we knew about this virus was still kind of quickly shifting and evolving. And to kind of compare that to Trump, who has deliberately misled people once the data has come into much clearer focus, right? It's true that people made mistakes, particularly around masking, that were really bad. But then they corrected them as new information came in. And that is sort of how you expect science to work. What Trump did is the opposite. He had secretly correct information and has spread and continues to spread falsehoods. So to me, those two things are not equivalent. Again, I'm not trying to make an argument for moral equivalence between Trump and anyone. I'm just curious about I mean, literally what we think the effect on lives lost or saved would have been in that first wave. I mean, there's also the problem of 
we were blind in this period, right, because of failures specific to the CDC that a better president than Trump might have done something about. But I think most presidents would have probably failed to do something about where the CDC had all these testing foul ups and we well, just I don't didn't think know. You can com- wait, 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 wait. You can't divorce the CDC from Trump, right? The head of the CDC is somebody that Trump installed there that another president would not have put there. I think from everything I've read, the choices that the CDC made were characteristic bureaucratic turf protection choices following standard practices at a moment when standard practices weren't appropriate. I don't think they were particularly Trumpy. I think that, again, a president who was super engaged in the issue, who was like rising to the challenge, would have been on the phone to the CDC head every single day saying, what the hell is going on? You don't think that there's a consensus that Redfield has been sort of disastrous as the head of the CDC? I don't think Redfield's done a good job, but I think that three week failure from the CDC was not a failure of a sort of you know, Trump appointee being incompetent. I think it was a failure of a federal bureaucracy behaving the way bureaucracies do when they need to pivot and can't because that's not how they're usually prepared to handle things. I don't know. To me, that's like a kind of unfalsifiable question, right? Of whether if you had a better head of the CDC, the CDC would have performed better. Right. I think that there is a counterfactual world in which a much better president than Donald Trump really successfully suppressed the virus. Anyway, let's pivot quickly just to the election for a minute before we break, because I think, as I said at the outset, one of the things that's interesting about this is there was sort of a mini debate about whether Woodward had an obligation to publicize this when Trump said it on the theory that publicizing this in February could have saved more lives and Woodward had some kind of obligation. And then there's a larger issue where the story of the week before, the story of Trump defaming the U.S. dead was a story that was basically 18 months or two years old and had clearly been sort of saved to be leaked by probably some military figures during the election. So I guess I'm curious what you think about the specific should Woodward have brought this out earlier, but also what I I imagine will be a continuing pattern of things Trump has said or done that are sort of saved up by his internal critics to be revealed in the home stretch of the election. I mean, I hope there's a lot of those things. You know, I think that some of these Woodward revelations seem, unlike most revelations, to have mattered a bit. You can look at polling that shows people took them seriously, right? There was one Yahoo poll that showed even, I think, 15 percent of Trump supporters saying that they were influenced by these revelations about what Trump had said about the the virus. It's hard for me to say whether Woodward should have released them in February, in part because in February, I don't think it was entirely clear how far Trump's denialism was going to go, how far his administration's interference with a scientific-based response was going to go. And also because he would have then shut down the possibility of being able to do all of these other interviews, which yielded important information. So I don't know that him releasing this in February would have changed it. You know, I think it's important that it's out now at a moment when people are able to really focus on the president's response and make a decision about it. I have less sympathy for some of the people in Woodward's book who had their own warnings about Trump that they have kept silent about. You know, Mattis spoke out about that grotesque photo op after Trump used the military to clear protesters out of Lafayette Square 
But, you know, in Word Word's book, you have not just Mattis, but a lot of people talk about how dangerous and unfit Trump is. Um, there's some, you know, extremely damning quotes from Dan Coates, among others. Like, there's this passage I'll read. Mattis said they still had to consider stepping forward. Jim, what would that be? Coates asked. I don't know, Mattis replied, but we can't let the country keep going on this course. He repeated, this is dangerous. Look, Coates said, others have tried it and it's had no impact whatsoever. They get tarred and feathered. And it's just, you know, if you have any kind of loyalty to this country and to its citizenry, you actually should be willing to go out and get tarred and feathered if you believe that you have information about an existential danger to the country. And so it's just stunning to me both that Coates still hasn't come forward besides kind of coming forward in this book because he's obviously a source for Woodward and that his reason for not coming forward, his reason for not coming forward, at least in the book, isn't, you know, I need to stay inside and kind of mitigate the damage as much as I can. It's that I don't think it'll work because it hasn't worked in the past. And so I'm not willing to stick my neck out, right? I mean, it's just such astonishing cowardice. For all the talk about, like, saving the republic and protecting the republic from Trump, the reality is that the thing that made Jim Mattis quit was a policy difference about pulling troops out of Syria. It often seems to me that, like, these guys have concerns about Trump's fitness for the job, but their breaking points are policy disagreements that are actually sort of, you know, sometimes places where Trump has a reasonable point and well, some places all, where... Trump did not have a reasonable point about the way he pulled out of Syria, even if you think he has a sure. reasonable point about pulling out of Syria. And Dan Coats thinks that Trump is compromised by Russia. That would have been a useful thing for him to mention during impeachment. He was a senator and he's complaining about how Republicans in the Senate are just completely re- failing to hold this president accountable. Again, that would have been a useful thing for him to say during impeachment. Yeah, I mean, I I broadly agree with you. I think people who think that Trump is unfit for the job, who worked for him, should not be leaking anonymously to Jeffrey Goldberg. They should just be saying what they think. Although Mattis did give his own interview to Jeffrey Goldberg that did, you know, say some Well, and it wasn't just an interview, right? He had the interview and then the statement. Um, But I just think they should all be out there much more publicly. There's such a huge gap between the degree of alarm that they express in this book and the actions that they've taken in response. Yeah, and I think the sense that they have of futility, right, that like people speak out, leave the Trump administration and speak out and it doesn't matter because partisan polarization is so strong. I mean, that may be right, as a sort of political... But it's also self-fulfilling. Well, it's, and it's punditry, right? They're sort of doing punditry. And I have plenty of respect for punditry. I'm doing it right now. But this was true during the 2016 campaign, right? When you had all of these Republicans saying, well, I can't attack Trump too frontally because he's benefiting from having the establishment against him. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. You shouldn't play punditry about your views as a public figure engaged in a public debate, you should state those views and let the chips fall where they may. All right, I think that's a good place to break. We'll be right back. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? 
When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. Longtime argument listeners will recognize our guest for today's second segment, Charlie Warzel, the opinion section's writer at large who covers technology, media, and politics. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Your home base, in spite of the at-large title, you actually do have a home base, is usually Montana, but I know you're in the Pacific Northwest right now. Can you tell us what color the sky is outside your window? It's a wonderful mixture of fog and smoke, which has just created a full five feet away gray wall. But that is actually, interestingly enough, an improvement. Yeah, that sounds like uh, an improvement from apocalyptic orange. Yeah, it's better than the tobacco stained yellow kind of thing. But I still, when I go outside, regardless of what I do, even if it's just for a minute or two, it, uh, it feels like I've smoked a cigar. This is day five or six of this, and it's... Um, it's it's quite a it's quite a lot to deal with on top of the rest of 2020s indignities. Well, we've actually invited you on today to talk about something that's apocalyptic in a somewhat different sense, which is the conspiratorial worldview of QAnon, which has been steadily gaining adherence across the Trump presidency and may even have representation in Congress soon enough. I just want to note for our listeners, because of the nature of this theory, this segment to come will include discussion of pedophilia and the trafficking of minors, which might be upsetting to some listeners. Charlie, we're going to get to questions that are central to your beat right now about the role of the internet and spreading conspiracy theories and more. But I want to start with the basics. As someone who's been following this for a while, can you explain to the uninitiated what is QAnon? At heart, it is what I'm calling a, a collaborative fiction, but it is it is a conspiratorial mass of theories that center around almost a biblical struggle of good versus evil in which Donald Trump and the Trumpist Republicans are crusading against a true rot in the world. They are trying to purge the deep state of its globalist elite figures who are consolidating power in order to do absolutely terrible things. And these are things like child sex trafficking. These are things like pagan or satanic rituals in which there are, you know, human sacrifice among children. It, it you know, it, and it gets weirder from there. But the, you know, the general gist is that the political divide in this world is is less ideological than it is a true moral battle of prime good versus extreme evil. And that 
that evil needs to be extinguished. And it is a fight that isn't just done through policy or legislation. It's a fight that is done by imprisoning your enemies, by locking them up, by executing them. So let's, I, I want to go back to the origin point for a minute. The big antecedent to QAnon was Pizzagate, which was the theory that a cabal of Washington, D.C. elites, mostly Democrats, yep. were kidnapping children into sex slavery in a ring that was based in the basement of the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Parlor in Northwest Washington, D.C. This was a conspiracy theory that sort of plucked some details from the emails from John Podesta that were leaked by WikiLeaks, but basically had the sort of the narrative of pedophiles in power sort of starts there. And then what Q does, right, who is the anonymous poster who starts this all, he goes online and says, look, I have inside information that everything you think is going on in the Trump era is wrong, that Trump isn't actually being investigated by Robert Mueller. He is cooperating with Robert Mueller because they're working together to put these elite pedophiles, as you said, Charlie, in jail. So that's sort of the pivot that takes us from Pizzagate to Q. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I, the best way I've heard it described is that QAnon is sort of the, the big budget sequel to Pizzagate. There was sort of a proof of concept there that it was a very viral, very appealing conspiracy theory to some people, as we saw with the real world violence and escalation. And so, yes, this is sort of a supercharged version of this. But it seems like another antecedent to QAnon is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and also the kind of classic anti-Semitic blood libel. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a Russian forgery, which is obviously a theme that's pretty prevalent in a lot of our modern conspiracy theories. But it's this Russian forgery that holds that there's this evil, secret, globalist Jewish elite who are running things and responsible for all the unrest and disasters in the world. And then there's also this sort of classic anti-Semitic trope of the blood libel, which is that the evil Jewish cabal is harvesting the blood of Christian children to make their matzah. And this is just a staple of anti-Semitic ideology. It was kind of a staple of Der Sturmer. QAnon just seems to me to be a continuation of these classic anti-Semitic storylines in a slightly different guise, maybe less overtly targeting Jewish people, although they do still have George Soros up there pulling all the strings. I think that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up. It's very true. QAnon has a great deal of the anti-Semitic tropes to it, especially the Soros-related globalists, Rothschild, banker elites controlling the world, the blood libel elements of that. I, I completely agree. As far as the ties to Russia, I think it's worth being very clear that it's super difficult to, you know, divine where this conspiracy is coming from. Oh, no, I'm not trying to blame it on Russia. I just am making a point that like, you know, kind of Russian forgeries about the ritual murder of children are not a new thing in Western politics. Absolutely. And what's important to know is that once something like this is out there, regardless of its origin in terms of who the first Q post was authored by or subsequent posts, these theories are, are observed by our enemies and they are weaponized by them and used to sow further division and, and discord. But I think you're right in the sense that, you know, QAnon is not new in the sense, but, but what is new about it is 
you know, I keep going back to this idea that it is a big tent conspiracy theory. I mean, they- So is anti-Semitism. Absolutely. At the core of it, people think that the Donald Trump pedophile remover in chief trait is core to this, but you don't actually have to believe in that to be welcomed by the QAnon community. And that's what I think is so insidious about it is, is it's, it's luring people in through these other methods. So I, w- I want to talk about the possible dangers in a minute. I'm curious, Charlie, you just described the core of it as the idea of Donald Trump, anti-pedophile warrior. And, you know, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for QAnon, right, which has a a useful sentence, you know, QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory alleging that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles running a global child sex trafficking ring is plotting against Donald Trump, who is battling them, leading to a day of reckoning involving mass arrests, right? That's that's a good one-sentence one sentence capsule summary. Yeah. And then Wikipedia is careful to say, no part of the theory is based on fact. That's an interesting sentence because I think one question that I always have about conspiracy theories is, you know, do real world events matter to them or not? Because I could tell you a story where QAnon is a kind of elaborate fiction that has been constructed around and validated by a lot of real world events, right? You know, that the story of the last 20 years has been one of sort of cascading revelations, starting within literally my own religion, the Roman Catholic Church, continuing through the Harvey Weinstein moment, the, you know, Hollywood pedophile reckoning down through Jeffrey Epstein, that in fact, there are networks of pedophiles and sort of generally sexually exploitative people in positions of power who, in the case of Epstein, have connections to the British royal family, the Clinton family, former prime minister of Israel, and so on. Like and Trump. All of that is, and Trump. Oh, right, right. And all of that is real. I'm curious if you think that matters, right? Like, is the existence of actual pedophile rings, actual networks of exploiters crucial to the appeal of this theory? Or is it sort of just an accident of history that we have the Jeffrey Epstein revelations and QAnon gets more popular at the same time. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. When Jeffrey Epstein's arrest and subsequent death in jail was unfolding with all the confusion and mysteries involved. Many of them still unresolved. We should, I, I want to uh, Many of them point still out. unresolved. I, I mean, I wrote that this was a, like a supercharging moment for that conspiracy theory and and for for this in general and 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 yes you're right we're living in a time where there are very real conspiracies in plain sight you know we we're living in a time when a lot of the quiet part is being said out loud and i think that that only adds to this and what's dangerous and and where that line in the wikipedia page i think is important is that qanon takes these real conspiracies or these real life events and it spins them completely so the connection of Donald Trump to Jeffrey Epstein, the videos of them, you know, at parties together, sort of ogling women. When those emerged, rather than the QAnon people starting to say, wow, maybe this is deeper than we thought. Maybe our hero is actually a part of of this larger network. Maybe he's part of the problem, too. It was spun that Donald Trump is a a longtime undercover agent who has been working for decades and decades, infiltrating these networks cozying up to people like Jeffrey Epstein in order to understand them and in order to destroy them. And look, Jeffrey Epstein was brought to justice. He is dead. And therefore, uh, you know, this is all a part of the plan. Charlie, do you think that 
part of QAnon could be a coping mechanism for a lot of people because, I mean, one of the things that makes QAnon, it seems to me, different than most other conspiracy theories, and I've written about this, is that usually conspiracy theories are about this malevolent power that's secretly running things, right? And in this case, it's a conspiracy theory that benevolent powers are working behind the scenes, that there are actually good people in charge of world events, despite all appearances to the contrary. I can't think of another conspiracy theory like that. But I wonder if people just have a hard time. I mean, I have a hard time facing the fact to which our country is being ruled by villains and idiots, that no one is in charge. And I think I had a vague sense before all this even though I consider myself fairly informed about politics, that if things went this far, someone would do something, right? That there was someone who had the sort of power to hold things together and they wouldn't let things get this out of hand. And I wonder if there are people who think that if this is being allowed to happen, it must be being allowed to happen for a reason. Otherwise, you would have to face the near dissolution of American democracy and kind of the fate of the republic. It's absolutely a coping mechanism. I, I look at it a little less, though, as people who are paying strict attention to the politics of the moment. And I think I look at it a little bit more of the people who've been left behind by the moment and their government. Even though it started out following the Mueller investigation, I think it actually, it's a coping mechanism for, you know, the breakdowns in American life. The best person I've talked to about QAnon is a actually a video game designer, and he designs alternate reality games, which are games that are, uh, you know, they're not console video games. They're games that sort of unfold over a bunch of different media. You know, they set up fake email addresses. They set up fake web pages. They plant things, uh, little clues. It's almost like, you know, a long treasure hunt, clues in, um, in newspaper, like print newspaper advertisements, things like that. They were very popular in the 2000s and 2010s. And this person said that QAnon resembles to him an alternate reality game in that the designers create a framework and then the people playing get so immersed. They know they're playing, but they get so immersed that they start to almost rewrite the game. Uh, they start to you know, take control of it. They see little gaps and holes that the designers never anticipated, and then they start building it together, which is why I call it a collaborative fiction. I asked him, you know, why, when do people stop playing the game? And he said, you cannot, even if you end the game as the creator, people will still play as long as it gives them a reason, as long as it gives them a community. And in these games, the, the main tie is a community that forms. It is an accepting group of people, a community that, you know, rewards different people's skills. In QAnon, a lot of that is online research and drawing connections between, you know, very vague things. It turns you into right. someone with a a great skill and and you become a truth seeker and as these crises overlap on each other you know a pandemic with you know climate related natural disasters with an election with political polarization i it gets very intense very quickly there's a fire burning and qAnon is a real accelerant and right now they think that someone else is in charge, right? Like right now they think someone else is going to conduct these mass arrests and executions if necessary. And so to me, the question is what happens, you know, Trump is defeated and the prophecy fails 
it seems like you'll have many more people willing to sort of take matters into their own hands, especially if they're genuinely convinced that the people running the country are harvesting the blood of innocent children. Maybe, although I, again, this goes to sort of, Charlie, what you were saying about the internet as accelerant, right? But like one of the interesting things in my reading on conspiracy theories is that it seems historically it's been very possible for people to hold views that if you took them literally would mean that like their government was run by the worst human beings imaginable and not have that lead to insane levels of political violence, right? Like if you read a really good book called The United States of Paranoia by a writer named Jesse Walker that I would recommend to people interested in sort of the history of conspiracy theories in U.S. life. And I read it a while ago, but I mean, one of the things I took from it is that there is historically usually a gap between what people will sort of commit to believing about the evils in high places and how they will actually act. And I mean, that extends even to sort of recent things like 9-11 trutherism, right? You, You could get a reasonably large number of people on the political left to assent in polling questions about, you know, George W. Bush's responsibility for 9-11 to assent to views that if you took them literally would mean that like the country was run by the most despicable, treasonous horror show, right? Um, But there was not actually a major wave of left-wing political violence when George W. Bush won re-election in 2004. And I, I think historically that's often been true, that people will say they believe that like lizard people are running everything without in their everyday lives, acting like lizard people are really running everything. Right? I think and- you're right that there's conspiracy theories don't always lead to mass violence. At the same time, mass violence and genocide is almost always preceded by some sort of conspiracy theories, right? So maybe not every Radio Rwanda is going to end in the Rwandan genocide, but it's usually, I think, a necessary, if not sufficient, precondition. And it's obviously not the only precondition to, you know, sort of mass unrest in this country right now. Yeah, the way that that I'm looking at this is, you know, these conspiracists are meeting the moment, and the moment is incredibly charged already with violence and with fear and anger and hostility. And that is actually what's worrying me more, is that these theories seem to be hitting harder and sticking with people. And the last thing that, I, that I've really been noticing is, is the effect of the pandemic. In the last six months, I have watched, again, the acceleration of this. And I'm really seeing it in the last month, where it seems like people who kind of held pretty mainstream beliefs have been sucked in or have had these theories court them because they've been stuck inside. They've had a lot of time. You know, they may have lost their jobs and it feels like everything is is moving a little bit faster. Um, and and that, that to me is what's scary. So I, I think that that gap between what you're reading and action is narrowing as the, you know, the election looms and as all these crises feel more pressing to people. To be reductionist, you're talking about, you know, people being stuck in, indoors and so on. I mean, to what extent is this just an effect of, this is the first era in human history when everyone is on the internet. To what extent is this the internet? To what extent is this Facebook, right? Like there's, you know, a sort of ongoing rolling argument, especially on the left, that, you know, Facebook specifically is failing in its responsibility to police conspiracy theories. 
Do you think that's right? Well, I do. To take the Facebook point, what I go back to is, I believe it was June, it might have been July, 2017. Mark Zuckerberg gathered all these community moderators who run Facebook pages and groups in Chicago for this, the first ever Facebook community summit. And he gave this speech and it's about like 14, 15 minutes long. And it's really an amazing document to go back to because he says, you know, we're going to shift Facebook's priorities towards helping you build more meaningful communities. And the way that you do that in the real world, right, is it's not just you decide, you flip through a book and decide to join a book club or go to some knitting group. They're recommended by friends. They're recommended by people who know you. It's it's networks, you know, building on other networks. And he said, so we're building the best algorithms we can to understand you and recommend you communities based on your interests that will be meaningful to you. And the way in which it's described and it is, I mean, this it's it's a QAnon is proof of of a massive success on that front. As but and then as you tell that story, right? I mean, is this a Facebook problem or is it an internet problem, right? Because like in 2017, I probably wrote columns like this, right? Like there was tons of coverage and argument about isolation and alienation and crippling loneliness and, you know, personal anxiety as the chief fruits of social media, right? That like people weren't in communities, they were sort of just alone performing for a crowd and and maybe being polarized just by like, you know, the sort of hysteria of their news feeds or something, right? So like it, it, there there is a way in which Zuckerberg is being responsive to what seems like, an, you know, the problem of loneliness and isolation on social media. And the problem is that when you pivot to community, it turns out that the communities that the internet builds are communities of, of hysterical conspiracy, right? Then Facebook steps in and breaks up these communities, and then you're back to the loneliness and anomie problem of social media, right? Right. I mean, th- it's, it's an internet problem for sure. I mean, it's, again... Nothing about a lot of these conspiratorial dynamics are are new per se, but the internet supercharges it. The internet, you know, allows it to happen at a scale that we're that we're not used to, that is unprecedented. Facebook has a responsibility here. If it's going to have this this primacy in the world, if it's going to be, you know, allowed to operate at such scale. I mean, QAnon is a dangerous group, a dangerous community. Yes, it is a community, but it is a community based in a, you know, in a conspiracy theory that never came true that Hillary Clinton was about to be sent off to Guantanamo Bay um, for, you know, being involved with sex trafficking. And it is a, as we've, you know, talked through here, it is anti-Semitic in nature. It is dangerous in what it asks you to do to fight your political opponents. And I think, you know, it's in a similar way to how Facebook treats other dangerous communities, other extremist communities, it purges them and it doesn't necessarily anymore, at least, think twice about purging, you know, a white nationalist community. But we, I mean, we should say that there have been in the last year, right, serious Facebook purges of QAnon, right? The argument is that they have come too late. It's a, it's a little late. I mean, they're trying now. But but again, these these networks are dense and, you know, they're, they're very resilient. So they'll pop up around, uh, you know, New Age Wellness, or they'll, they'll rebrand themselves as children, you know, against sex trafficking websites. And they pivot off real world events, right? Like it's, if you have something like the Jeffrey Epstein thing, and you have a large population, you know, commenting on it and theorizing about it, those are in a sense, conspiracy theories, but they're also theories that, 
you know, a social network that wants to have a reasonable range of debate needs to leave up, right? Like, I mean, it just seems like there's a ton. I mean, this is, again, the power of conspiracy theory is there's a ton of ambiguity about what, you know, what constitutes a conspiracy theory and what constitutes commenting on the news of the day. Wait, so this is Ross being QAnon adjacent. How do you know I'm not Q himself? I may be running the, you know, (laughs) I've been, I've been, I think it's totally reasonable to think that it's dangerous and insane. My question is more like, to what extent is the internet accelerating versus to what extent is the internet sort of exposing patterns of conspiratorial thinking that are common to American history in all times and places that we just didn't see? I feel like, you know, obviously fact checking is sort of completely inadequate to misinformation in this era. Asking the platforms to behave responsibly has not worked. Um, This is maybe a dark response to QAnon and other sorts of internet phenomenon, but I don't understand, or maybe this has happened. Tell me if this has happened. Why aren't more people trying to infiltrate these communities? <laughs> it seems like it wouldn't be that hard to build up a profile in this community and start turning people against each other, start you know, sending people off in different directions. Why isn't anyone trying to do that? I'm not sure that's not already happening. While you do see people like mobilizing out in the streets and there are you know some influencer types, a lot of what's happening in this movement is all just anonymous. I mean, I've I've been in in some of these groups. There is infighting, right? There is fracture. There is split. But then, you know, the, those groups go off and and form the, their own node. Um, so I, I mean, I think I think this is a dynamic situation. It, it it is moving. I think there are people that are gonna try to do exactly what you're saying. How do we know it, this isn't how it started? Right? What if the original cue was, you know? a left-wing operative trying to, you know, trying to build up Republican hopes for Donald Trump and then, in theory, make them go insane if he failed. And it just, well, you know... Well, that would be a left-wing operative with, like, a very poor reading of cult history, right? I mean, I feel like that person clearly should have read When Prophecy Fails and a whole host of other literature about how people respond to having their conspiracy theories disproven. What's kind of funny is that you guys are having a, a, a conversation that you actually see on some of these terrible message boards and some of these these awful threads, which is to bring it back to the the story about the Oregon fires last weekend. You know, there was a, a photo of a of a bunch of masked people w- who look like they were wearing firefighting gear, and one of them has a, a gas canister on their back, and they're holding an, an Antifa flag. And all these people are saying, look, see, like, you know, they're, they're clearly setting these fires. This is proof. And then, you know, and then someone's saying, well, actually, you know, the gas can is for the, the chainsaw there. It's like, well, that's what they want you to think that it's for the chainsaw. And really, you know, what this is to try to do is to try to make us discredit ourselves. So if we, you know, attack them for, and it's just this, this game of like, who, who started the fire? It almost, you know, to some degree just like doesn't matter. Like I keep asking these people who are actual, you know, researchers in, in, and have spent years now tracking QAnon and said like, what happens if tomorrow Q was unmasked and we figured out who the person was, you know, dead to rights and it, you know, regardless of who the person is, they don't think it matters. It, it's gone too far. I mean, yes, it, you'd peel a few people off. Is there any significant body of ex-QAnon people? I mean, you have sort of refugees from all other sorts of cults. 
it's starting to happen. A lot of these stories, though, are actually people I've been in touch with actually have in- incredibly, you know, traumatic stories because a lot of these people are sex abuse survivors who have longstanding mental health issues who've been kind of sucked into the movement and and spit out by it and 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 hurt. We don't quite yet have the very loud poster boy or girl of the of the of the movement mm. uh yet um like a Derek Black or you know someone like that who has come out of the darkness and seen the light. So I think that's all coming. I, I, this is another another part that's worth mentioning is that this is all still very new and its centrality to to politics, you know, talking about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who looks like she's going to be, you know, elected to Congress, who, you know, fervently believes this, you know, she, there, there are other candidates who have these, you know, leanings and QAnon support, but she's going to be the first. So we're still actually strangely in the early days of this. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be determined about where this goes with a potential Joe Biden presidency versus a, a second Trump term. And I, I honestly, I wouldn't make a lot of predictions no, right no, now. I, well, I was just going to say, since we're coming to the end of our segment, do you want to leave us with a prediction for QAnon in a Biden presidency? I think it gets worse in a Biden presidency. I think it helps to foment a lot of unrest in the period, you know, say there is a, a Biden win that is, you know, contested by the Trump campaign to some degree. I think that QAnon foments a lot of real instability and, and potential violence, you know, through, through a lot of posts and through those networks, you know, saying that this is it, you know, this is the real final struggle because you're, they're trying to, you know, steal the election away from you. Give me an ideological evolution prediction. Say this, that period passes, Biden is inaugurated. Does the Q narrative become that Donald Trump was defeated? Or is the narrative that he is, in leaving the presidency, he has actually become even more powerful? in the fight against <laughs> cannibalistic pedophiles. Do you, which, which, which way do you think it goes? I mean, if, if he's defeated, he's defeated because, because the enemies are really that powerful and treacherous and willing to steal whatever they want away from the true uh, desire of the American people, so to speak. I can imagine a Donald Trump who is now back at home in Mar-a-Lago in February 2021, stewing over this, truly embracing some of these ideas, especially if they lean towards the election was stolen for you, and really, like, you know, full-throatedly embracing that. I can see that as, a, as, an, as an extremely likely possibility, that, that it just sort of, you know, he, he becomes one of the, the influencers in this network, um, that's, that that's seems like exactly a real possibility. The, that's exactly the kind of prediction I was hoping to coax out of you. So <laughs> thank you. And I think we'll leave the QAnon conversation there. And now I will try and coax something else out of you because we are ending the show with a recommendation. And last time you were on, I think you recommended that we check out a newsletter that sends out music to listen to while you work. So I'm wondering if you have any equally cool life hacks you can share this time. So I am a, an extremely disorganized person and I've you know long taken all my to-do lists and notes and things like that and just sort of either scratch them out on, on pieces of paper or, you know, errant 
Google Docs or sent myself emails, and it's all just uh, like a mess. Uh, all all the notes I take when I interview people, all the the lists and things of books I read, whatever. And somebody recommended uh, this app to me, and it's called Bear, and it is a note taking app, and it syncs across all of your devices. It is unfortunately it is Apple only, but it is a really sleek, intuitive way to organize all kinds of thoughts and you you organize them through a little system of hashtags. It creates different folders. You can access it from pretty much any Apple device. And I have found that I in in this moment where I everything feels like the you know the walls are are closing in, uh it is like the one serene and peaceful place where I I can start anew and organize uh, my things. And so, yeah. And so having all my, my interviews and my column ideas and uh, notes on books that I've read and things like that is, has been like legitimately very soothing. I would, I would say do this like digital housekeeping for yourself and, and use this app if you feel like you don't have a lot of control in the world right now. So, Charlie, one more time. What's the recommendation? The recommendation is the Bear note-taking app, B-E-A-R. It'll give you just a little bit of calm, I hope. Terrific. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have an election question you want to hear us debate, share it with us via voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section, and our team includes Alison Bruzek, Isaac Jones, Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, Vishaka Darba, Kristen Lynn, and Kathy Tu. We'll see you next week. I don't, I'm not even at the stage of organization where I have all this stuff <laughs> no, on, not, on, on scattered pieces of paper. Yeah, no, listen, listening to you, I'm like, wow, he has time to organize his life. That's He's so I lucky. Should, I should say these are the gilded problems of a person who isn't trying to run a homeschool <laughs> while working. Uh, so I'm going to alienate, you know, three quarters of the argument audience.